Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is July the 7th, 2016. This is episode 1822 of the Survival Podcast, and we're doing a bit of a change-up this week. Um, expert counsel will not be in the house tomorrow. I'll do my call-in show tomorrow. I know we did that last week, but a short week this week. I've had a lot of stuff piling up. Uh, for listener feedback because we didn't have one Monday because Monday was the 4th of July. I've also had a lot of thoughts on my mind about Independence Day. So I'm doing a listener feedback show today to cover some of the stuff that's coming for feedback and a lot of it has to do with a kind of a common theme today. So today's show is going to be a bit different, a different feel. Um, there's actually going to be quite a bit of third-party content in today's show Probably as much or more than when I do like the Veterans Day show, though it won't really be music other than the song of the day. Um, I'm going to talk to you guys today about Independence Day, and, and I prefer that term to the 4th of July. The 4th of July is a day, Independence Day is a thing. And I didn't do anything leading up to the 4th, and I've kind of saved it till afterward. And today's show, while there's some non- Independence Day content in it as a regular feedback show would have kind of has a theme rounding it out more of a frame we're going to start out with talking about Independence Day on the 4th of July I'm going to speak briefly on Hillary getting away with it yet again and what it means for our country not because I want to only because I've gotten so many questions what does this mean for our country I think people had this thought that well if she got indicted then we wouldn't have President Hillary Clinton and somehow the Republic would be saved into the arms of either, I guess, Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump. But I'll speak on that briefly. I'm going to talk a little bit about automation today. And, you know, we talk about legalistic stuff with Hillary Clinton. One of the, the professions you might think we don't, you can't replace with robots would be a lawyer. But I'll tell you how even the job of a lawyer can be automated and, uh, frankly, maybe do a better job in some instances anyway. I got a person asking me a very sincere, heartfelt question about their small business. When is it time to call it quits? I'll be blunt and honest with you about that answer because sometimes it is time to call it quits. I've called it quits many times in things that weren't working, but I've always been working on things to lead to something like this that indeed does work. Um, I have a new type of comfrey cream that you can get. It's made in Germany. Uh, I have not tried it yet, so I'm not endorsing it. I will link to it. But it's uh, PA-free. The alkaloids that we are worried about as far as liver damage uh, I am not overly worried about, but I do worry about very heavy long-term use with comfrey ointments uh, because, you know, there is there is validity to the claim that these alkaloids can do liver damage. It's just how much of it do you got to use to make that happen? Well, when we use ointments, we're using concentrated amounts of comfrey, and even though it is on the skin, it does get absorbed by the skin, goes into the bloodstream. Uh, apparently, the Germans have read the PA out of their comfrey, and I'm wondering how much PA is really in Bocking 4 and Bocking 14 that we grow here anyway. It may be a lot lower lower than the uh, wild comfrey. I'm not sure about that, though, yet. Um, I've read conflicting information on that. Anyway, we'll talk about that. I got a question from a guy that says, you know what, I quit drinking, Jack. I like your shows on making mead and cider and stuff like that, but that's not for me anymore. But I do like root beer. Can we make root beer at home? It's so simple. I'll tell you how. And you'll, if you drink root beer and you buy it from a store, you'll be like, why the hell do I do that after you hear how simple this is? 
Um, and you can make it to your own likings and tastes as well. And I have a story for you called We Need a Monster. We Need a Monster by A.A. Farner, who is a member of this audience, long-term listener to the show that wrote an original story that actually read on his site. I'll be playing that for you kind of as cleanup today. And then I have a song that at first may not seem to tie into things like Independence Day and Needing a Monster, but maybe it will for you. I have all that more as soon as we get to it. First, let's take care of our two sponsors of the day. Let me ask you a question. Do you have a favorite knife, a special knife, one you may hand down to a son or a daughter? How cool would it be if you had such a knife that you actually made yourself? With KnifeKits.com as your partner, you can do it. Check out the hundreds of options they have along with all the help you would need from books and DVDs to develop the skill of knife making. You can learn more at KnifeKits.com. Guys, you know, prepping involves evaluating your primary survival needs of food, water, shelter, security, and energy, and then shoring them up. That's really the most simple way to understand it in a nutshell. In that effort, ready-made resources is the go-to place to get that done. Everything, and I do mean everything for your prepping needs. Ready-made, ready to go at ReadyMadeResources.com. And with that, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. Alex Strucht has two for us and some bullet points in other news for the year 1822. Of course, we're looking at the year 1822 because it is episode 1822. I have Charles Babbage, his difference engine, and the phone company. And I have Here Come the Mountain Men. And in other news, Louis Pasteur is born. Pasteurization is the process of heating milk or wine to kill off bacteria. He will become the father of microbiology. Gregor Mendel is born. He will turn crossbreeding into the science of genetics. Ulysses S. Grant is born. As a general, he will win the American Civil War for President Lincoln, and he will be elected president himself. I'll add a little one onto that. Ulysses S. Grant was the last United States president to ever have been, dun-dun-dun, a slave owner. This is true. You can look it up for yourself. Wasn't really enthusiastic about it, though it had to do with marriage and inheritance. But yes, Ulysses S. Grant himself did own slaves. Harriet Tubman is born into slavery this year in Maryland. Speaking of slavery, she will help slaves escape via the Underground Railroad. FYI, it is not a railroad, but a network of escape routes and safe houses. I'm going to read for you Charles Babbage's Difference Engine and the Phone Company, because it is so earth-shattering, really. And Alex's take on the phone company makes me think of what that was like, and some of you millennials have no idea. Make no mistake, this is a major computer science milestone. Charles Babbage has begun the design and building of a difference engine, the first programmable computer. He gets the idea after struggling with error-prone calculations. He marvels at the simple system that Paris mathematicians have worked out for building reliable logarithm tables. They have broken down the calculations to smallest error-prone steps, To allow anyone with basic knowledge of addition and subtraction to perform the calculations, Babbage has the idea of a mechanical device could be programmed to perform the medial labor of addition and subtraction. He sets out to design one, although he never builds the whole machine. He sets the world on a path of computer programming, podcasting, and everything. In the late 1980s, someone will take his plans and build the difference engine to completion to see if it will really work. The answer is, yes, it does. My take by Alex Shrugged. I built my first computer as an electronics engineering project in college from paper design to a real computer from scratch. 
Those were the early days when men were men and a 40 megabyte hard drive was considered an overindulgence. I had one. My phone bill would arrive on a computer punch card with a warning. Do not fold, spindle, or mutilate. Otherwise, a damaged card would cause the phone company problems. I can hear you laughing. But the phone company was frightening when they came out with their new logo. It, it looked like the Death Star. American Telephone and Telegraph, AT&T, would not let you move their phones from room to room without calling in one of their specialists to rip it out of the wall for you. The comedian Lily Tomlin made her, made her name poking fun at the phone company. But if you watch one of her routines, you get a sense of the amount of information the phone company was collecting just by using those punch cards. Quote, privileged information? Don't be silly, we're the phone company, end quote. Uh, let me tell you what this was like for those of us that are old enough to remember. Indeed, you didn't own your phone. You couldn't go to the store. I'm talking about old school phone you plugged into the wall. Many of you maybe have never seen one, right? We said these phones, they plugged into the wall. And maybe you'd get a really long cord from the receiver to the handset, right? So that you could move around in the kitchen and get it all twisted and tangled up. Avocado green, remember? No? Okay. Right. We had a black one with the dial. You dialed it. I'm serious. I'm dead serious. And when the phone company guy came out and did some stuff and brought us a new phone, because our phone was considered old, it had push buttons. Now, I had seen push-button phones before. It wasn't like the first time. This is my grandmother's place, really kind of backwards. But they, they bring out a push-button phone. You know, you push a button, one, two, three, like that. Okay. It had a switch on it. It switched between tone and pulse. We did not yet even have tone service. So when you pushed four, if you listened to the handset, you heard it go click, 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 like that. Push two, click, click, push three, click, click, click. So it imitated, it electronically imitated the clicking of the rotary-dialed phone. And indeed, you were not allowed to move the phone. You could get, you know, like I said, a wire to make the, the handset go further from the, the, the main phone body, but that was about it. So when we moved, my, my wife, even being older than, me, older than me, just didn't pay attention and never really noticed this stuff much. And uh, when I when we moved to our house that we bought in Pennsylvania, this house was built in the early 70s. In fact, it might have been built in 68, if I remember correctly, so late 60s. And uh, some of the carpet, I think, might have been put in when they built the house. Orange shag, yep, remember that groovy, baby. And uh, downstairs, there was a phone jack. And in that phone jack was a really long wire that you'd plug into the back of a phone. And we did still use phones in the house back then. And we plugged our computers into there. And then it made a pulsing sound and went, remember, you've got mail. Remember that? Okay. So this is the time frame where we're in the, we're in the mid-90s, early 2000s here. And uh, so she decides she wants to pull this phone out of the jack. And she comes and gets me, so I can't get the, the phone cable out of the jack. I'm like, good God, woman. Oh, fine. I go walking down there, and I look at it. I said, of course you can't get it out of the jack. And she said, well, why not? I said, it's held in with a staple. She goes, I saw that, but it didn't, just didn't make sense to me. That the, I said, you know what? This has been here since the early 80s. And I explained the whole thing, and then she sort of remembered it. That it had been there so long, it was back when you weren't allowed to move the phone And they would staple the phone jack into the outlet so that you'd not remove it. And if you wanted your phone on a different side of the house, you called them up, and they came out, and I shit you not, they just simply made a longer cable that went into that same jack, 
and like stapled it to your wall. Or like in, they would try to like the you know like the 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 door jam and like in the crease and they'd run it like down by the carpet where the carpet met. But they would basically just staple the wire and then put your phone there and you were not allowed to move it. Yeah, we've come a long way, but have we? Save that thought as we go through today's show. As I said, today's show will be well a bit different than you're accustomed to. I want to start out today with. Independence Day, not the 4th of July. See, I think we can all decide that, okay, you know, we got to pick a day for this, you know, because there was a, a point in time where we actually say, well, this is our, our day of independence. Was it really July 4th? Well, that was the day the, the declaration was signed. There's also some time in, I think, late August when the King of England finally got that letter and wasn't real happy about it. On July 2nd, the Continental Congress actually voted for independence. The first shots were at Lexington Green. Was that independence? Or was it when Cornwallis surrendered to Washington? Or was it when the final treaty was signed over two years later? What day really was our independence? It, it doesn't really matter. Was it the day we declared it or the day we had it? It matters what? That it was our day of independence. So we've decided that, you know what, as good a day as any for that is the 4th of July, the day that the Declaration was signed by men who pledged their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honors to liberty and freedom. And with that in mind, before I talk about this, I want to play something for you. Uh, quite a few years ago, for Christmas... I got a DVD collection. I don't really get DVDs or buy them anymore because, well, unless it's the only way I can get something, you can just get it you know, on Amazon Prime. You can get it as a download. You can get it on iTunes. And I prefer to have an electronic format. I can move it around, what have you. You, know. you can't lose it. But uh, they, I got this boxed DVD set uh, of an HBO miniseries called John Adams. And my wife and my son got it for me. And they really didn't know anything about it. They just figured I would like it, you know. And I have to say, the entire series is okay, but the first two episodes are outstanding. I'm about to play some segments for you from the final part of the second episode. By this time, the Boston Massacre has happened. John Adams has successfully defended the British. He's become part of the Continental Congress and seen as someone fitting to do so because he showed himself to be impartial and stood against his own kin defending the soldiers of the Boston Massacre and doing so successfully and with honor. And he has become in love with the idea of liberty and freedom at this point. He has seen the transgressions of the British for what they are. And he is attempting to get the Continental Congress to vote for independence. And a contemporary has just spoken about, we're moving too fast, it's too harsh, we have no hope of succeeding in this. Let the blood, you know, the, the, the sword of, of the father never be raised against the son. Very impassioned speech. And it's now at a, at a, a decision-making time. And they don't want to have a vote where the majority wins. They want every colony on board with now saying we are free independent states. And Adam stands. And I'm sure there's some eloquence added to this, but it's very much true to the speech that he actually gave from what we know, and this miniseries is very true to history in general, 
It's certainly worth watching. I've actually said that I think our Congress clowns, our senators and our, our, our House of Representative members, should be chained into a chair once a year, have their arms and hands chained down and fish hooks placed in their eyes so that they cannot sleep with loud uh, speakers in their ears and forced to watch the first two episodes of this miniseries so they can know what they're crapping on when they do. I posted that on Facebook recently and somebody said, you're making the mistake of thinking they care. And I responded with, I never said they cared. I would just like them to know. So Paul Giamatti is the actor that plays John Adams in this. The only thing I'd ever seen him in before I saw this miniseries was the, was it called Liar? Big Fat Liar, where they turn him blue and everything, and it's like a comedy, and that, that kid, did, uh, whatever his name is in it, uh, the Disney kid or whatever. And uh, it was a funny movie, but I didn't see the guy as a really great actor. He's an amazing actor. He does an amazing job in this miniseries. He does an amazing job in this speech. And this is what our independence is really supposed to be all about. So I want to play that for you now, and I'll come back. i got something else to play for you. I'm going to tell you my thoughts on it. Objects of the most stupendous magnitude. Measures which will affect the lives of millions born and unborn, are now before us. We must expect a great expense of blood to obtain them. But we must always remember that a free constitution of civil government cannot be purchased at too dear a rate as there is nothing on this side of Jerusalem of greater importance to mankind. My worthy colleague from Pennsylvania has spoken with great ingenuity and eloquence. He has given you a grim prognostication of our national future, but where he foresees apocalypse... I see hope. I see a new nation ready to take its place in the world. Not an empire, but a republic. And a republic of laws, not men. Gentlemen, we are in the very midst of revolution. The most complete unexpected and remarkable of any in the history of the world. How few of the human race have ever had an opportunity of choosing a system of government for themselves and their children. I am not without apprehensions, gentlemen. The end we have in sight is more than worth all the means. I believe, sirs, that the hour has come. My judgment approves this measure, and my whole heart is in it. All that I have, all that I am, 
and all that I hope in this life, I am now ready to stake upon it. While I live, let me have a country. A free country. Okay, and as I said, today's show will be a little different. There's quite a bit of third-party content in it. Um, but what I want to play for you now is what what happens next. And I'll, I'll fill in the blanks so you don't have to listen to it all. Uh, they go to vote, and, and once they vote, um, and they get the resolution passed, they, they bring out the declaration. And it's a pretty impressive scene when they're voting with the video part to see how somber everybody is at the end and realize what they've actually done. And it kind of puts you in their place and helps you understand it. But it doesn't translate well to audio, and it would make the next segment quite long. So what happens after that in the, in the, in the series is... They show the proclamation, the declaration, being read publicly, and then it kind of bounces around to other people reading it. The little girl you'll hear reading it is actually John Adams' daughter, who is recovering from smallpox. The lady you'll hear is John Adams' wife, Abigail, and uh, there's some other people you'll hear uh, reading this. But it is just the reading of the full Declaration of Independence, and I want to come back and tell you, my thoughts on how far we've fallen from this time. When, in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident and that all men are created equal and that they are endowed by their creator with certain... Un- What's that word there? Unalienable. certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is in the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute new government. The history of the present King of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. In every stage of these oppressions, we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. Our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury. A prince whose character is thus marked by every act which may define a tyrant is unfit to be the ruler of a free people. We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America, solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are, and of right ought to be, free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Bless you. God save our American states! 
Okay, so I was going to take out kind of that end with the music and all just for time's sake, and I thought about leaving it in there to kind of drive home the fact that once this document was signed, fireworks didn't go off, people didn't drink beer and eat hot dogs and bratwurst and burgers and say, yay, we're free, a, a long, bloody battle, a long, bloody war of many battles had to be fought, and the lives of many people were completely destroyed on both sides of, uh, of of what way to go. I'm not speaking so much of the other side of the ocean, but within our country, we had, of course, loyalists who who thought this was this this business of uh, of revolting was a bad idea, and uh, many of those people also had their lives destroyed. And all of this was done in the name of freedom and liberty. And today. We speak of things like the Declaration, but many people, other than maybe the very first few words, and some people not even those, could tell you actually what's in the Declaration and what it means. And some would wonder why I even care about this as I've migrated politically through the spectrum of uh, libertarian uh, Republican, basically, is where I started out as a very young man to full libertarian to eventually moving to what I consider being an anarchist. I'm a, an anarchist in, in philosophical belief, but I'm a pragmatist in, in, in reality. I, I believe that government force is wrong. I believe that forcing anyone to do anything against their will is wrong. Uh, I'm a belief that all anarchists are libertarians, but not all libertarians are anarchists. And if you follow libertarianism to its logical conclusion, as soon as you invoke the non-aggression principle, there can be no government as we think of it. No government with authority or power over those who do not consent to being governed. Um, but yet, I, I'm also, again, as a pragmatist, far aware that there are degrees of bad and that what this nation was founded on was one of the least degrees of bad, and it progressed into one of the worst. And I will save my thoughts on that for the end. But what I want to talk about today, and I think is missing from the American mindset, is if our nation was formed out of the belief that when we are oppressed, that when tyranny rises, that when we are asked to give that which is ours to an extent which we no longer find reasonable... When all of our attempts at redresses have gone unanswered or brushed aside, when those in power have acted as though there are one set of rules for them and another set for us, when we are told we have a choice, yet we do not, that not only do we have a right, but we have a duty to cast off said government. The Declaration of Independence may in fact be one of the most dangerous for those in power documents ever drafted, and they're kind of stuck with it. It's the most powerful nation in the world, and probably still the freest nation in the world. The most prosperous nation in the world was founded with it. You can't just make it go away. You can't just pretend it didn't happen. It's enshrined. It's hallowed. 
to speak ill of it. Oh. Yet our government pretty much wipes their nose with it. And later, quite a few years later, long after the Articles of Confederation, which were our first basic constitution, we came up with the current Constitution of the United States. The Constitution itself gives way too much power to government as far as I'm concerned. We gave too much power to the monster, save that thought toward the end of today's show. But the Declaration is pretty much an anarchist document that at any time, people in any nation, anywhere in the world, not just Americans, have a right to be free. And if the government that is to serve them no longer is, they have a right to cast it aside. Our nation was formed on a belief that when government no longer served its people, the people had a right to reject said government. Government can only exist in anything approaching legitimate at the consent of the governed. How many of you consent to our current government? It is time for a new type of Independence Day, an evolution away from government. That's what I've been teaching for a long time. And we'll save the rest of this for later in the show. I want to move on to something I really don't want to talk about because it's all the TV is talking about. But when you get so many emails from so many people asking you about it, emails, private messages on Facebook, you name it, I've got it. Hillary got away with it. What does it mean for the country? If you still have that question in mind, the last part of this show didn't go into your brain. If the system is broken, it doesn't matter who is in charge. If the system is broken, it doesn't matter who is in charge. The system is the problem. I've heard a lot about, you know, James Comey from the FBI. Was he bribed? Was he threatened? You know, a lot of people around the Clintons end up dead. That's, that's a fact, by the way, folks. You can check into it if you want to. I don't know. I don't know whether I believe Comey and his conclusions or not. I don't know. I don't know if his recommendation to not prosecute under the circumstances makes sense or not in the mind of someone in his position. It doesn't make any sense to me, let me be clear. I believe that had I done this, or you, dear listener, had done this, we'd already be wearing orange. We'd already be in a federal prison. I do believe we have just seen evidence there are two standards, two standards here. If anything saved her in this from a person like Comey who seems seems to be on the up and up, as much as you can expect anybody at that level to be in our current screwed up system, it would be how many people knew about it. How many people knew about it and nobody did anything? Giving reasonable doubt. But I, I don't buy this thing. I don't buy this thing about you didn't intend. Well, officer, I didn't intend to do 65 and a 55. It was an accident. I mean, if it doesn't get you off a parking ticket, how does it get you off releasing top-secret information? Who believes here that you could put a server in your basement and move government documents, even if they were non-classified documents, from your place of work to your private server in your basement 
and have multiple servers and multiple devices and send emails. Did they know that people she sent the emails to were hacked? And they, they said we can't prove that hers was hacked, but pretty much anybody that wanted to could have done it. And they would be smart enough to not leave proof that they did it and, and, and not go to prison. So should Hillary Clinton be in prison? Yeah, long ago. Long ago. The improprieties with her position of Secretary of State and concessions made to nations who then poured tons of money into the Clinton Foundation, that alone should put her in prison. Whether this was a mistake or intent or not, that was done with intent. I, 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 they're grilling Comey today at, the, at Congress. I'd like to know, like, are you guys investigating her for any of that? What do you know about that? But the question I keep getting isn't, you know, should she have gotten away with it? I think the average person with average intelligence, unless you're so blinded by the political dichotomy, knows the bitch is a criminal. Plain and simple. She's a criminal. She deserves to be in prison under our system of laws. If we are to believe that justice is blind, and I don't, but if we were to believe so, she belongs in a prison cell. She's not gone. Get used to it. It's a big club, and you ain't in it. But what does it mean? Well, I'm going to tell you what. More and more, I'm actually believing if Donald Trump can keep his foot out of his mouth, he's going to be our next president. It doesn't mean anything. She's not going to be our next president. I, I believe this is a gift to the Trump camp. If Trump can stop going on and on and on about a rigged system and conspiracy and just talk about the fact that she lied and make his case to the American people for what he wants to do, I think he can win the election easily now. And I, I, I don't know that he will. If he doesn't, I mean, I made two predictions here. They're encounter to each other. One was, there's no way this guy could win presidency. There's no way. There's no way people are going to vote for this guy. Uh, in the primaries alone, I was proven wrong about that. But I also made a prediction of a strong man that would be a Republican. It would come in and get things done as a Republican that no Democrat could get done to advance the agenda forward. Well, he looks like that guy now, doesn't he? The other thing I said about him, though, was he'll take a dive in the end. He doesn't really want to be president. If he doesn't beat Clinton, all I can say is the guy's taking a dive. And I listened to him talk yesterday and go, are you taking a dive? How many times can you repeat yourself before people get tired of hearing you at a speech that they paid to come see? I don't know. But I can tell you this. The problem in this country isn't our government. It's our people that allow our government to do what our government does. And I know you could say, Jack, if it was up to me, there's all this stuff to do and they wouldn't be doing. Yeah, but it's not enough of you and I. This is a country where the majority does rule. There is a tyranny of majority in this nation, far more so than there was ever intended to be. And it is up to this pe the people of this nation to decide where they go from here. I, for one, wonder if there is any possibility of a restoration of true liberty in the United States under the banner of the United States, or if some level of a breakup, a secession, will have to occur before that can happen, at least for some of us. I'm not sure. I'm not sure, but I'll leave it at that for now. Because I want to talk about some other things, some actual listener feedback, now that we've covered enough time for an entire show, and we have a long way to go today. But um, I've been talking a lot 
about automation. And a lot of people wonder if that's even possible. Um, it is. It, that automation could undo so many jobs. This one's on shithitthefanplan.com, but it's been covered widely. Um, let me just give you the synopsis on this. So there, there there's this... Hold on a second. Computer issues, real-time delays. Okay, so I'll read you a bit of it. This is by Vic Bishop. Simply and aptly named Do Not Pay, an ingenious business of a 19-year-old Londoner has already saved citizens of the U.K. an estimated £2.9 million in civil fines for unjust parking tickets. Less than two years old, the already popular robot lawyer service has assisted people in absolving some 160,000 tickets by helping users take advantage of the appeals process, which is generally overlooked and underused. Do Not Pay uses a simple chat-based interface to guide users through a range of basic questions to establish an appeal to their parking ticket as possible. These include queries as to whether or there were any visible parking signs at the location and where the ticket was given. The AI lawyer then guides the user through the lengthy appeals process. Um, and you can read the rest of the article if you want to, but you get the point. This guy made a robot, not a robot with arms and legs that walks around, but a, a technological robot, a co code-based robot, a prompt-based system that simply understands the law and understands how the law works and guides you, the user, if you're an English person anyway, if you're from England, uh, through the process and successfully has overturned in two years 160,000 tickets. Well, here's my thought. Give me a single law firm, a single lawyer that could do that. 160,000. Just, just, just kind of break the numbers down as to what it would take to do over a two-year period. Um, assuming that our lawyer worked 365 days a year, didn't take any days off to play golf or anything like that, uh, two years, 760 days, 760 days, uh, you take uh, 160,000 tickets and divide that by 760, you'd get 210, 210-ish tickets a day. So you'd have to have a lawyer successfully help people litigate 210 tickets a day for, for, for two years without a single day off to do what this automated piece of technology did. And you guys out there, lawyers, think you could handle taking care of 210 tickets a day? Even if you had people kind of doing some of their own work on it? Do you think you could talk to 210 people a day for five minutes? If you talk to 200 pe 210 people a day for five minutes, do that math. If you talk to them, there would be 17 and a half hours a day. So you'd have to work 17 and a half hours a day for 365 days, uh, no, 760 days straight. And you'd have to get it all done in five minutes a pop to make it even possible. If we extrapolate out that it would take 10 minutes of talking to each person, we go to 35-hour days. I don't think there's 35 hours in a day, and you got to sleep and eat and you know take a dump once in a while. If we can automate a lawyer, what can't we automate? You know, it's interesting to me, there's been some recent um, accidents with self-driving vehicles, and people are like, oh, see, it's not, I heard Bill O'Reilly, I don't know how the hell he ended up on the TV, or they had Fox on, I guess, and um, he was he was lamenting this and going, it's just not ready yet, he's just crapping all over it, you know, like, like how many, my, my response is, how many accidents were there yesterday with people driving? And, and I want to point out to you this with the autonomous vehicles. We have vehicles now 
they, an emergency stop themselves. So if you get too close to something, you're going to hit it, they automatically apply the brakes. Okay, that's in, impressive to a degree. Here's another thing, though. There's tons of vehicles now that can do automatic parallel parking. Is it more difficult to drive down the road or to parallel park? How many people with driver's licenses can just drive down the road, pull into a regular parking place, park, get from point A to point B, all that good stuff, right? How many drivers today can parallel park? If you're like me and you're in your 40s or older, you can do it. Because do you remember, we used to have to do it to get our driver's license. When I got my driver's license, it wasn't on the road. Like, Pennsylvania was smart enough to go, like, if we haven't given them a license, they're not supposed to be on the road yet. Maybe we should be testing them on the road. They test you on the road here in Texas. But uh, so you went into this closed course, and it was like this really wavy thing, and you had to go through it at a certain speed. You couldn't go under 25 on any of the turns. You had to make all the turns and stuff. And you pulled into a thing that was like, it looked like a great big parking place, like a big enough to fit like two cars, three cars, two and a half cars in. But it had curbs. You had to pull up to the one curb like you were parallel parking, but you're pulling straight in. And then you had to do basically a three-point turn to get out of it, and you couldn't touch the curb. And you had three tries to get get it done. And as a 16-year-old, you're paranoid, you're going to touch the curb. So you could honestly do it in, like, two easy. But it would take everybody that got done the first time three. Then you went up to a thing that had cones set up, and you had to parallel park between the cones. And you had to be within, I think it was like 10 inches of the curb and you know, not sticking out and, and, and flat. And then you got your license. But today, because uh, I, I let my license expire a number of years ago, quite a number, but I let I just forgot about it. And I let it expire for so long, I got pulled over. A cop gave me a warning. But he's like, your license is like past 60 days. You got to go get this taken care of. I'm like, I'll go do it. He goes, I got bad news for you. You're going to have to take the test again. I'm like, you're kidding. He's like, no. So I had to go take the computer test. And then I had to take, I'm sitting out there with all these kids. And this lady comes out and, and I she's like, She looks at me, and like, there's like 10 people ahead of me, and they're all kids, and she looks at me, and she goes, what's up? And I tell her, and she goes, yeah, you're next. So she's like, drive down here, and, and, and I got some paperwork to do. Pull under that shade thing, turn the radio on. So I'm sitting there listening to the radio for like five minutes, right? She's like, okay, go back. And I just go back, and she's like, passed, and, uh, and, and, and on I go. So that's driving. We don't even have to parallel park anymore. To get a license, but a car can parallel park. This automation thing is coming, folks. This is just another example. I'll have a link to this uh, article for you today in today's show notes. But yeah, a computer gets 160,000 tickets revoked in two years. Uh, that's better than knowing the chief of police, I think. Let's take another one. Uh, one more quick thing on that before we move on. I, I, don't, I couldn't find a picture. Um, I thought I put it on Facebook. Somebody sent me a picture recently of another one of my predictions absolutely coming true with automation and, and grocery stores and job elimination. So there's a grocery store, at least in one place now, where you, you basically have an app on your phone and you scan your items with your phone. And you put your stuff in your uh, cart and you click pay at the end and you walk out the door. How do they prevent theft? Not sure. Maybe they're in a place where it's not as huge a problem. Maybe they have a few people employed. Maybe they have any theft cameras in, in place or what have you. But, yeah, that's that's one of the things going on now. I think eventually they'll have smart carts that you can't steal because when you put the item in, it gets rung up, and when you take the item out, it, it, it takes it off. Um, but right now there's already a grocery store, at least one at least, where you just self-scan, pay, and leave I, I think that's pretty cool. And I'll tell you what, 
the, the reality of theft is there's plenty of theft, you know, in the system already. So uh, the same theft deterrence can still be used. It's not the cashiers that prevent theft. Um, they may on some level at certain times would scan every item type thoughts and things like that. But in the end, um, it, it's, it's mostly the other theft deterrent systems that do what they can to prevent theft. Anyway, this one's totally different. This is from Adam in Northern California. He says, Jack, looking for your thoughts on calling it quits on a small business. I have a small side business since 2008. It's gone from profitable enterprise to money-losing hobby in the last few years. For the last year, I've devoted a great deal of time to building back the revenue, but it's just not panning out. I've gained many useful skills and knowledge. I plan on looking for the next opportunity, but I have a lingering desire to hold on. That is mostly pride at this point, but it feels like a real step backwards. Just let things go when I want to continue my entrepreneurial journey. I could just continue to think, keep things on life support. The total loss of this is not a big hit to my family budget, but I'm more concerned about the time it consumes. I want to give things uh, my all, so I end up investing something that is just not giving me an acceptable return. I've decided to pull the plug, but was wondering if there's any real advantage to holding on to an unprofitable hobby. I appreciate your insight, uh, Adam in Northern California. Um, first of all, every hobby that I have is not profitable, okay? But I like my hobbies. I don't think you're doing this because you like it. So um, it, it kind of goes out of that. You're not asking in that context, but I want to make sure I answer that context up front. So if, if your hobby is shooting uh, and competitive shooting and you actually shoot in some competitions, you could earn some money. And occasionally you earn some money, but you never actually make a profit. You always spend more than you earn. Uh, that hobby is worth continuing because it's truly a hobby. A business is is to be profitable or it's, it's, it's not viable. So... My gut is cut loose and do something else. That's my gut. But there's so much I don't know, so I'm going to try to fill in some of those blanks with the maybes. So I don't know what you do. I don't know how viable it is. If it was profitable, I don't know what profitable meant. I don't know how profitable it was. And I do appreciate your brevity, but these are some of the things that, like, remember I say, give me your point and then details. Like, you could have given me those details and it would have been okay. I don't know how much I could have taking time to read but like so because it doesn't matter because like your situation is different than everybody else so it's more about how do, I, how do I analyze this so let's say that profitable was significant and it was certainly worth the effort and it was not only profitable but growable as a business and then my question is what changed there's there's several different things that can change that cause a business to go downhill one is that the the overall market shifts And the business is unable to adapt to that shift. If that's the case, you have to go back and locate that shift and determine, is my business unable or was I unwilling? Could I adapt now? And since you've been trying to rebuild revenue and all, I'm kind of thinking you probably would have at least stumbled on that. This isn't something you've been doing for six months. This has been something you did for eight years. Uh, but maybe you haven't. Maybe you haven't been willing to look at it that way. Is there a technology that, that disrupted the market? Well, Where did your customers go? You know, uh, were you working from a limited pool? I mean, I do have people that you know get on this show and they think they're going to make a fortune off of it, but they're selling a product that you know a certain percentage of the people in my audience will buy. And then once they've sold that product, if it's not a product that you buy more than once, they're kind of done. 
You know, and, and it's why sometimes people want to like get more involved and I won't let them because I, I can see that in the future. So if you're not drawing from a wide enough pool, if you're selling a product that somebody buys, now I have it, I don't need it anymore, then you have to have a very broad pool that you're pulling from. So if they went away because you exhausted a warm market, you exhausted a local market, and you just can't find more, then you either have to determine, can I go broad or do I have to change what I'm doing? If the, 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 the thing is, and I'll use something because I don't know what you do. So let's say that you were in, um, here's a perfect example of me calling it quits with something. When Google came out with AdSense, not AdWords. AdWords are when you go to Google and you search, you see advertisements. AdSense is when you go to somebody's website. You don't see it as much anymore from Google because it's not as profitable as it used to be. Um, and you went to, you go to a website and you see Google ads on their website. Well, they get paid if you click on that ad. All right. Most people that make money with AdSense anymore make it through YouTube videos because that's the same platform now that they pay you for advertising on your YouTube videos. And that actually can be profitable, um, but on websites. So I was very good at something called search engine optimization. So if I realized that something like, and there's an example of a mini site that I made, heavy construction equipment. These are people that are selling and leasing things like, you know, excavators and stuff like that, hundreds of thousands of dollars. So they could afford to pay like two, three bucks a click And if, uh, if, if, if one in a hundred bought something from them, that was profitable as all get out. So I located all these different high dollar niches. I made little websites that had long tail terms like, you know, uh, excavator with removable bucket or something like that. And I built this little mini, little mini site. This is one of many of these mini sites that I built. And uh, people would find those sites through, like, looking for specific things and then see these advertisements for people that actually did sell construction equipment, click on those ads, and if it was a $2 ad, the best we could tell back then, we would make about a dollar, about a 50% commission. And I worked that up to where I was making six, seven, eight thousand dollars $8,000 a month while working a full-time job. And one day I logged into my AdSense account, and it was like $4,500 the day before, and now it was like $800. And Google just changed the rules. They changed what they were paying out. They started saying things like, well, we found evidence of click fraud. What do you mean click fraud? Well, don't worry. You didn't do anything wrong. Well, I'm the one that gets paid. If there's click fraud, I would be the only one that would commit it. the hell are you talking about? We can't tell you. So I just watched my earnings dwindle, even though my traffic was still good and all. So I went, there's no, there's no sense in continuing here. The market changed. That product was no longer valid as, an, as a monetization platform. So if, if, if you had a market shift away and there's no way to adapt to it, you have to go find something else to do. If it's harming your family life, then you have to go find something else to do and maybe take a break. I was always doing a couple things, and that way, if something wasn't working, I could just go to the next thing and do another thing. I don't know that I advise that for everybody because what I learned when I got involved with podcasting was When you find the right thing, you have to give it your all. You have to give it 100%. And I've spread myself too thin at times. And TSP is, is a great business. It could be bigger if I had stuck to just it. It really could have. But I do things for more than just myself. Some of the other things I've done is to, to, to get other people involved into, into their own businesses. And some of that's worked out brilliantly and some of it hasn't so much. We all fail at things. See, the failing at a business is not the same as failing in business. And that's something we all have to understand. 
You know, I, I'm not a huge defender of Donald Trump, but when I hear people giving him shit because several of his businesses went bankrupt, if you look at the total number of businesses and the total number of bankruptcies, he's about four times better than the, re than the average for everybody. Most businesses do end up either in bankruptcy or failing more than succeed. If it was easy, everybody would do it. The mark of a successful entrepreneur isn't finding one thing, doing it, and being successful. It's finding the thing they can be successful at. So in your case, my gut, based on the tone of your email, Adam, is that it's time to do something else. My full knowledge of your situation is not sufficient to be able to say conclusively that is indeed the case. But that's how you have to analyze it. And so the question would be, if you didn't do this, what would you do? What would you do? Because if you really want something, you have to figure out what the answer to that is. And my biggest advice to anybody today is whatever you're doing, be building a fan base that will follow you. Be loyal to them. Put their needs ahead of your own. Value them because they're all you have. And if you do that, adaptation becomes far easier. Because if the market shifts, and even your customers that love you say, I just can't justify the expense because I have this other option now. When you find something that does fit them, they'll come back to you. My belief has always been that I want my brand to be associated with integrity. You can hate me. You can hate me. You can think I'm an asshole. You can think I'm a jerk. You can think I'm a dumbass. And I don't care. But if you don't believe that I keep my word, then that bothers me. And I think if more people built their businesses on that model, they'd have more success. Now, don't get me wrong. There will always be people, and generally they're people that can't be trusted, that will always question the integrity of anybody who comes out that forceful. And say, oh, you're doing this, you're doing that. and yeah, Small-minded, bitter assholes that never get anything done. I have them pop up from time to time on the blog. I had one recently because I posted uh, the Amazon item of the day was a insulated jug. And the guy sent me a coupon to get one of his jugs for free. So there's no integrity there. It's like, screw off. You know, one-off people don't bother me. But if I feel that the majority of, of, of my market is, is starting to question whether or not I really put them before myself, then I have a concern then I have a concern. And the problem for most businesses like yours, Adam, isn't that that's the case. It's that you never build up enough brand equity and trust for it to ever become a problem. So that when you fall on hard times, there's no place to go to find out what can I do for you next. If you build up a 1,000 or 2,000 or 3,000 customers even that are truly dedicated to you that say, I want to do business with Adam, Now, it doesn't mean I'm going to buy everything he sells. It doesn't mean I'm going to send him money every day for doing nothing. But if he has something that makes sense in my life, and I can make it work, I want to do business with Adam. You will always be able to find something that makes them be able to do business with you. So that's where you have to look at going next. I, I hope that helps you, and I hope that helps others in the same situation. Uh, next one is about a product that is evolving a marketplace. Um, this is from Keith. Keith says, I just listened to the show on 627. There was a question about using comfrey for arthritis. 
It was interesting as I just started looking at it for chronic back pain. My search turned up Truma Plant Comfrey Cream. It is claimed that this product is almost PA-free, making it safe for long-term use. Amazon sells the product, and it's even on Prime. The first link I've sent you is a product, a product about the product. The WebMD link is interesting study that was done supporting Comfrey as a pain reliever. Keep up the stellar work and have a great fourth. Keith, I'm not going to read these articles. I will link to both of them, and I'll link to uh, this type of Comfrey ointment on Amazon. I don't need any more Comfrey ointment right now. I've been pretty happy with the stuff I make and Dr. Christopher's. Um, but... Uh, next time I need some, I will try this stuff and see how it works. It does make sense to me that we could selectively breed comfrey and look for lower and low lever levels of the alkaloids that actually cause problems. And if if we actually did that, then there would no be no reason whatsoever that same comfrey could not be used internally. The hell with what the FDA says. I mean, the FDA's reason is because of these alkaloids. And there's there's no reason to believe that it couldn't be done. Now, whether there's enough interest to do it outside of Germany, I don't know. But I do know this. If you could find out whatever strain of comfrey they're doing this with and get one tiny piece of root, one person could cover the United States in comfrey in about five years with enough other people that want to do it. So I'd be very interested, more than this cream, to get my hands on the clones of this and I mean what we know is it can be done we know this from marijuana uh, they've they've bred marijuana to have very different effects different amounts of THC there's marijuana out there that has almost no THC in it and that cannabis oil is actually extremely useful for children with seizures and the government still gets in the way of that even though the active component that would actually get you high isn't there So if we can breed up and down THC levels, there's no reason to believe we couldn't breed up and down PA levels in comfrey. Um, anyway, again, I think, personally, my opinion is, the government reaction to comfrey makes no sense other than they didn't want it around. As to not just healing um, injuries, and of course the traditional name of comfrey is actually called bone knit. And You know, plenty of people have seen it for themselves. You can't tell them that it doesn't work. We had a, a guy that came here to one of my events, and the pictures are in our TSP Workshops Flickr if you want to dig through them and find them. And he either he burnt his finger pretty bad on like the first day and put comfrey on it. And it's only a three-day event. And by the end, the pictures at the end, it looks like it's like a four-week-old wound. You know, where it's got like a little scab and it's pink skin and a bunch of it fell off. I uh, took a nasty spill up at Elijah Springs Farm at the last Permeethos event. Huge boulder outside of the garage where we had this concert. Pitch black and I'm walking through there and I just don't see it. And I hit it and I go down and I just scrape up my left arm. And I immediately washed it out and put comfrey ointment on it. And it healed like way faster than it would without it. But pain relief as well. Um, I've found that wherever I have pain, if I put comfrey ointment on it, 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 it goes away very quickly, uh, within reason. More so than like DP ointments and things like that. Uh, my my daughter-in-law has having like, you know, sometimes women right after they have a pregnancy and they, they deliver, they have some like hormonal whack-out 
things go on. And she broke out in like this really bad rash. She was over here on the fourth with her new baby, and uh, she was almost in tears, itching. And they said, "Well, conferee ointment work on this." And I said, "Well, I, I, I don't know. I've never tried it for that before." But you know, and we had some stuff that it's, it's homemade stuff. And uh, I said, "Just pick a spot and put it on that small area." And almost immediately that rash went down, and they put it wherever she was really broke out and itching, and it was gone. So conferee, to me, is a miracle of nature that's been erroneously attacked. But it's, it, it, it's, it's basically the, the truth has been used to sell a lie. The truth that it can be dangerous if misused has been used to make a belief that it is dangerous, period. But we could actually apparently remove that danger. So this is certainly something to look into. But what would excite me very much so is getting my hands on root cuttings for this comfrey that they're using in Germany. Let's take another one. Okay, with all the heaviness, and there's still some left today, how about we have a fun topic here? It says, hi, Jack, question. Could you tell us how to make root beer? The details. I've been sober for 24 years. Uh, congratulations on that. People that need to be sober, it's a it's a difficult thing to get there, and congratulations. With that being said, I really enjoy to listen to all the mead discussions and shows you do. Even though I will never be able to drink any, I watch the Mead of the Week videos on YouTube because they're really enjoyable to watch. Due to issues with gout, I no longer consume my favorite soft drink Coca-Cola, no longer consume my favorite root beer, IBC, because they contain high fructose corn syrup. Please consider telling those of us who are unable to partake in the consumption of adult beverages or a mead how you make root beer. Thank you. This is so simple. What you need to do is buy a little product called root beer extract. I have a, a variety of it in the show notes linked to Amazon today, but almost every home brew store does this. And I'll give you kind of the basic recipe Uh, for making root beer, you can certainly adjust it, and I would adjust the sugar down myself, especially in your situation. But the easiest way to make this is in two-liter soda bottles. So since you don't drink that anymore, you need to find someone that does and get some two-liter soda bottles. Remember, those are great for water storage as well. And uh, you'll use one cup of sugar uh, and root beer extract. You'll need a tablespoon of root beer extract and about a quarter teaspoon of yeast, a small amount of yeast, and water. And that is all you need to make a basic root beer. And the way that you're going to make this is you're going to put the sugar and the water into the bottle and leave some space and shake up the sugar until you dissolve it. Uh, using water that's a little bit warmed up will help you with this. You get the sugar to dissolve thoroughly. Uh, add your quarter teaspoon of, uh, or your, t your, your tablespoon of root beer extract to the bottle. And add a quarter teaspoon of yeast. I, I prefer champagne yeast, but you can use like Flashman's Baker's yeast for this. I like champagne yeast because it's so neutral that it doesn't contribute anything, even though it's pretty much overpowered anyway by the root beer extract. Uh, you're going to then top your bottle up till it's about an inch from the top. So it's very, very full, as though you were filling up a bottle of beer that you were going to force carbonate, uh, which is what you're going to do. And I know what you're thinking. But Jack, that yeast is going to have a party with all that sugar. It's going to start rocking and rolling, turning sugar into alcohol and pooping out CO2 and alcohol and doing its thing. It is going to do that. It is going to do that. But we are going to stop it getting its tracks. We are going to, we are going to nail it to the wall as soon as it does its job for us. 
It's going to do that. And about the time, and it might take a day, it might take two days, it might take three days. You're going to have to pay attention based on your temperature and how much sugar you use and everything else that you do here. You're going to feel that bottle. And that bottle is going to go from a being a squishy, weak, sissy bottle to being nice and firm. It's going to feel firm and tight. It's going to be tight. Some of you know what movie that's from. I do like slapstick movies, Austin Powers. It's nice and tight. So when it's nice and tight, you're going to say, you have done your job, yeast. You've made a tiny trace amount of alcohol that even if you're trying to be sober will not affect you. And you stick it in the coldest part of your refrigerator. And the yeast goes, oh, I'm tired. It's too cold. And it goes to sleep. It settles to the bottom and it stops doing its thing. What you have to do to keep it from going kind of ape on you is you have to take it and pour it into a glass and then put it back in the refrigerator. It will very, 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 very slowly continue to do its thing and keep the pressure up for you and keep it from going flat. It would be best to drink your root beer after you've made it within a few days. Okay? That's it. What's nice now? Now we can do things. We can say a cup of sugar is a lot of sugar to that. We can cut it down to three quarters of a cup. Try that. If we like it, we can cut it down to half a cup. With less sugar, it'll take longer to carbonate, but there's plenty of it for it to carbonate. It's going to consume a little bit of it and do its thing. And We don't need that much. All right. Once we figure that out, we can say, well, maybe we can go down to half a cup and we'd like it a little sweeter. Now we can cut it with a little stevia extract. We don't even have to put it in the bottle. We could taste it and one drop of stevia and go... There it is, right? We can do all kinds of things now. We can get us some real, real vanilla extract, not imitation, and we can vanilla it up a little bit. We can add licorice. We can add any flavors we want to make our root beer our own. There are ways to make root beer completely from scratch, but in the end, you're probably better off using root beer extract, at least to learn the skill. Now, how do I make root beer extract? Because I have, and you can make a nice little kegging system, and you can do other types of sodas as well. I have found that the cream soda extract works, that the cola works, the root beer works, the ginger ale is crap, and the lemon lime is crap. All right, But the other ones work, and you could make your own versions of lemon lime. You could make your own fruit sodas. So it might be worth making a little kegging system up. Because all I do... Uh, a bottle of extract makes four gallons of root beer. So I take my Cornelius keg, I set it on the ground, and I figure out how much sugar I need, and I use a one-gallon bottle, and I shake it up, dump that in there, and make sure I've got you know all the sugar dissolved, however how much I'm going to make, and I top it up till it's four gallons of water in there. So I've got water, root beer extract, and sugar. That's it. And then I usually, I like vanilla in mine. That's the one thing I like to add. So I'll put about about a, 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 a tablespoon of vanilla extract to the gallon. I like a lot of that vanilla coming through. And uh, then I put the lid on it, and I stick it in my, my, my uh, keezer, right? And I put the CO2 on it, and I jack it up to about 50 pounds of pressure. And then I shut that side off and drop it back down to my 10-pound 10, 10 dispensing, and uh, you let the pressure back on my other kegs that have ciders and stuff in them. And then I, you know, the next day I go and I shut those valves and I charge that sucker back up. Because what will happen, you charge it to 50 pounds, you come back the next day and it's like got 
four pounds of air. Well, why? Because the, the CO2 is dissolved into the soda. So I make root beer and put it right in my keezer. So you can do it. If you have any way to force carbonate, you could do it that way too. So the other thing you can do, instead of all that complication, is you can make yourself a carbon cap. And then you can get just a, a CO2 tank and a regulator, and you put the carb cap on your CO2, on your uh, two liter soda bottle, and you can straight force carb into a soda bottle, two liter soda bottle. Um, I'll find a link on how to make a carbon cap and how to do it. Put that in the show notes. It's complicated to go into here, but those are your three ways. We either use champagne yeast or any yeast and then kill it with, uh, we don't kill it. We put it to sleep, put it to bed time, uh, in the refrigerator. It's so simple. You should just go ahead and try that. And if you like, your results, then you can go into some some form of course carbonating either with a carb cap. That'd be the cheap way to do it. But if you're going to make a lot of soda for kids and friends and family and all that, and cut the sugar content and all that good stuff, then it might be worth you know getting us a, a small um, chest freezer on Craigslist and uh, getting some stuff and building yourself a little keezer for sodas. Just saying, uh, works the same for beer and soda alike. Let's take another one. So for this next one, we'll have our, other than our song of the day, our last piece of third-party uh, content. This is by A.A. Foreigner, who is an independent writer, who is also a fan of this show and has been for a long time. Does some pretty cool stuff. This is a short story read by the author called We Need a Monster. There'll be a link to the original story with his original recording as well on it. But rather than me reading it, I thought I'd let him read it to you and do my closing segment on how this pertains to our independence, or lack thereof, for that matter. We need our own monster. The older man nodded thoughtfully. But just a monster that protects the perimeter of our farm, and he should be restrained at all times. The older man just nodded thoughtfully and rocked in his chair. So as agreed, we get our own monster. But with a strong chain... And we don't feed him much, so he won't get very big, and we keep him along the edge of the property. Several weeks later, they had their monster. The young man claimed that this is a brand new type of monster, not like the ones their neighbors had. This one was more obedient, and would only go after the pests and nuisances that the monster was instructed to. One evening, while sitting on the porch, the old man watched the monster chase a pest all the way up to the barn. He pointed out that the monster was off his chain. Yeah, I know, the chain slowed him down too much. But look, he went right back to where he needed to be. I don't think we need the chain on him all the time. Maybe just when we go to bed. Several weeks later, the older man mentioned that the monster was getting a little bigger. Well, he was a little slow, just on what he could forage, and those pests on the western side of the garden were keeping the crops from growing. So I upped his food supply. Now instead of him foraging all the time, he can deal with those annoyances. The older man squinted his eyes and looked at the western edge of the property, straining to see the problem. Sure, there were problems out there, but with the proper fencing and such, it would sort itself out, he thought. But the younger fellow seemed so eager to get a handle on it. He just let him use the monster the way he saw fit. The harvest season came and the homestead was blessed with an abundance. The older man came out in the morning and saw that the younger man had the monster harnessed to the wagon as if to pull it to town. I figured that the monster could take the wagon into town. Everyone would see how big and scary he is, and he would not just be out here lurking around doing one thing. The older man reminded him that the horses had always done just fine pulling the wagon before. 
Oh, they could use the day off. Besides, the monster can pull as much as them. The older man watched his young partner go off into town and slowly shook his head. Winter came, and one bitterly cold morning, the old man walked into the barn and found the young man feeding the monster in the barn. The old man frowned and pointed for the monster to leave, which the monster did, but he did not go too far away. Not all the way to the edge of the property, as he had been trained to do. The younger men pled his case. It is silly for our monster to be out in the cold. All our livestock are in the barn for the winter, and if the monster is outside and they are in here, he might as well be in here too, protecting them. The older man was adamant that the proper place for the monster was along the perimeter, watching over things, and if he was in the barn, he would start eating the food of their livestock instead of foraging for himself, as he was supposed to do. The old man was adamant and enforced the rule as much as he could, but he often found tracks where the monster had come into the barn. Then the older man broke his leg just as they were beginning the spring planting and was confined to his bed for several weeks. The older man now got around much slower on his crutches, and that is when he discovered the monster had grown considerably. He also realized the young man had gotten rid of the horses and was using the monster for all the chores around the farm. The summer passed, and the old man noted that the farm was running efficiently, but the monster seemed to be growing more and more. He also took stock of the fields. It looked like their harvest was not going to be as good as the last year because something was eating the plants in the early stages. He pointed this out to the younger man. Well, when you see I started having the monster do all those extra chores, he would just get hungrier and hungrier, and now I have to feed him. But he just seems hungry all the time, the young man said nervously. The old man glared at the young man, but inwardly he was angry with himself too. Early the next morning, the old man spoke. We needed a monster. We still need a monster. But we, he motioned to the young man and himself, we grew lax. We came to depend on it for too much. The steps towards this problem today were both slow and gradual, but with each concession to the rules, the monster grew. Now in order to rein it in is going to be both difficult and dangerous. Difficult because we have gotten lazy letting the monster do things that we should have been doing. Dangerous because it has grown so big and now is used to doing whatever it wants, whenever it wants. The younger man nodded thoughtfully, rolled up his sleeves, and they went out together to deal with the monster. Well, it's, it's, it's a lot like Harley Davidson's motto, isn't it? If I have to explain, you wouldn't understand anyway how that pertains to our country and our government. Um, but I'd like to start out with the assertion that we need a monster. Maybe we do still now in this, this point in human evolution. Maybe we still need monsters. Uh, government is the monster in case you haven't worked that out just yet. As an anarchist, my goal is to not have a monster, to not have a monster at all. But there is a fundamental human belief in the minds of people today that well, we have to have a monster. But I think what we need to start understanding is that's what government is. Government is indeed a monster. And it's not just a monster due to its size and how big it is and how bloated it is and the, the talking points of the right-wing pundits. That's, that's not what I mean. When you set aside a group of people that are empowered with the ability to, 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 to take liberty from others, 
indeed, you've created a monster. But when you take the same group and you give them the power to take property from others, you have legalized theft. You have legalized theft. And just because you can get them to willingly give you the money, it, 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 the only thing it changes is it goes from theft to extortion. There is nothing government does on the taking end that any private individual is free to do without fear of government taking their liberty. There is, there is no way that I can say to you, you know what? You listen to TSP. You owe me money, and you better send me money, or I will send people to your house to get you and, and not be put in prison for it. And I say somewhat rightfully so. But government can do this. Government can say, you chose to drive on our roads, pay a tax. Well, I already paid you a tax. I, had, I didn't run my car on freaking jelly beans. I bought fuel. You already got a tax. Well, the social contract, the invisible social contract that I never signed. We need a monster. Do we need a monster? Or have we evolved enough to not need a monster? I'll leave that question for another day. I will entertain the majority of this audience who would say we will always need a monster for this intellectual discussion and discuss what it takes to actually have a monster and not have it turn on you. Eternal vigilance. Eternal vigilance. There is no constitution that can be written that can control a monster because the monster will eventually grow large enough to tell you what the Constitution means. And to tell you, or your children, or their children, what the people that wrote it meant when they wrote it. Think about that. The way this monster grows in the story is interesting, isn't it? It's much the way the monster's grown here. Well, we need it to be a little bit bigger and a little bit stronger to protect us a little bit more. And in the end, the old man... And the young man decide, roll up their sleeves, and you know what they're going to do. They're not going out there to negotiate with the monster. They are not going out there to tell the monster that things have changed and he has to be chained back up. They're not going out there to tell the monster that he no longer is free to run into town and bother other people. They're not telling the monster you have to be small again and go back to foraging for your own food and serving us rather than we serve you. They're not going to do any of that. They're going to kill the monster. That's what's going to happen. They're going to go kill the monster. And then what are they going to do? We still need a monster. They're going to go get a new monster. A better one. A different kind of monster than their neighbors have. Just like they did before. See, the old man in this story to me is the generation that gave us the first monster that is long since dead. And the young man's not that generation's children or grandchildren or great-grandchildren. It's us. It's eight, nine, ten greats removed from the grandparents. And they were asleep because they're dead. And we were left in charge of the monster. Well, since we didn't create the monster, we don't know how to control it. And we've been told by each generation their excuse for why the monster got bigger. Will you believe your parents and your grandparents? So we let the monster get bigger because of the communists. 
Then we let the monster get bigger because there were poor people that needed help. Then we got rid of the monster to get bigger because of the war on drugs. And then we let the monster get bigger because of those crazy people in the Middle East. And then the even crazier people in the Middle East, we had to get the monster bigger and bigger and bigger. And now the monster reads your email. The monster reads your email and, and, and wants to soon tell you if you're going to have a means of defense against the monster, how many shots you get before you have to reload and what way you have to reload. But the monster gets to have all the shots it wants. This is why I said at the beginning of today's show, the segment I opened with about independence, I'm not sure there is any course to restore liberty in our nation other than our nation actually being smaller in every meaningful way, actually breaking into regions or independent states. As people have started to talk about something like Texit after they heard about Brexit. And you have to ask yourself, has this monster gotten so big that its energy can be turned on itself? If Texas or California or Florida or Montana or Wyoming or Kansas. Why the hell would Kansas succeed? But Kansas said, you know what? We've had enough. We're done. We're going to put a resolution on our ballot and decide, not by vote of our legislature, but by vote of our people, do we want to remain a part of the United States? And if that state then had those citizens vote, and those citizens did in fact vote to leave, especially not by 4%, but let's say by like, you know, 80 to 20. And then the state legislator passed a referendum that said, we're leaving. The governor signed it and sent a declaration of independence to D.C., recalled its senators and representatives and sent ambassadors in their place and said, we got to work this out, guys, because we're done. Could our government in this current landscape afford the disaster of sending troops to make us come back. I don't know that they can. I don't know that, I'm not saying they wouldn't. I said, I don't know if they can get away with it. Globally, diplomatically, I, I don't know that it's possible. I do know that if some group of armed yahoos took over the Capitol, and uh, even if they had pretty good popular support, and said they were they were going to do it. If they did it with an armed rebellion, they, 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 they could get away with it, and they would, and they would do it really fast and really violently. But if it were done through, you know, political channels. But I don't even know if that's even feasible anymore. I don't know that I want that. I just got something in my email box today that I have to check out about... Texas state officials coming down on people for licensed people for selling raw milk to restaurants because they were using a courier service and the courier service wasn't licensed. And doing the same thing about duck eggs and quail eggs. That's kind of personal to me. So that's my state stepping on my throat. Um, so just because I had a, you know, opportunity to vote for a Texit would not mean that then Texas is free. This is what I don't think people get about. Great Britain, first of all, I want to tell you there's a real chance that Brexit will never happen. The, the, the people that run the UK 
never saw this coming, or they would have never let this referendum happen. They never thought it was going to be this way. They never thought that people were going to vote for it. And there's all types of, of well, here's a word you're not going to like, so put your fingers in your ears. It's going to use the F, okay? But it's the only word for it. There's all types of fuckery afoot right now in Britain with the powers that be and within the EU to try to figure out ways to make this not happen. To call for a second vote, because if you don't like the first vote, you just you get a second one, right? That doesn't work for anybody else, but it works for the people in power. Um, could it happen here? I don't think I don't think 60% of Texas would vote for independence. And I think you have to be there to make it happen here. I don't think 51-52% gets it done. I think to have the political will, it has to be overwhelming, maybe 70%. Remember what our founders got done. They got 100%. Well, New York abstained and later voted yes. But they basically got all of the representatives. When is the last time all of our representatives voted for anything controversial? I mean, they all vote for certain you know, approvals and... They vote for uh, pay raises for themselves and things like that. But when's the last time like Congress voted for something 100% that would have been controversial? Yeah, I'll let you think about that. It's probably 1776, not even the current Congress. But this is why I think our independence in the future has to come more from technology, more from developing faster than the state can with technology. And I think we can privately. BitNation is starting to do things that actually allow people to create their own virtual nations. I have to look more into that. And I know when I've talked about virtual nations, people say, but, but, Jack, you still have to have property. You still have to drive on roads. Yeah, 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 but one battle at a time, guys. One battle at a time. I mean, during the Revolutionary War, I should say soon afterward, we, we quickly resumed trade with Britain. We needed to. What if the founding fathers said, well, how will we ever get by without having trade with Britain? They, they run half the world. And the concept was, let's get freedom from them, and then we'll talk to them about it. So you, you, you take what you can while you can. But I think the first thing that has to happen, if there's any chance through any means, whether it's technological evolution, whether it's through actually restoring the original monster back to its original size, whether it is, is through secession, whether it is through regional uh, breakups, whether, whatever it is, the first thing that has to happen is the most difficult. The majority in our country, the vast majority, have to actually crave liberty and freedom. They have to actually want it. And they don't. I don't care how many flags they wave. I don't care how many times they chant USA. I don't care how many times they use the words liberty and freedom. You know, within religion, it's understood that a person that prays a prayer, it doesn't matter if they're just saying the words and they don't mean it. At least it should be. Or if they don't understand the words that they're using. Because liberty is not pretty. Liberty is messy. Liberty is ugly. Liberty means I get to do shit you don't like, and you get to shut your hole about it. Well, you don't even have to shut your hole about it. You can say, Jack Spirigo's doing things I don't like. And other people can say, we care or we don't give a damn. That's liberty. And if, if it really frustrates you, and nobody really cares, 
And you can't make a compelling case to why I should stop doing it to where I stop doing it or people stop following me in it. Then you have to go figure out something else to do with your life. You can't use force by proxy to stop me. Do you understand? That's what every time somebody says, we need a law about this, we need a law about that, we need this, we need that, we need this. That's all you're saying. I want someone else to do violence on my behalf. If you're for a restriction or a law that inhibits the activities of another individual or compels them to take action they do not wish to take in a, a position or time in which they are harming no one, that you are saying, I want someone else to do violence on my behalf. I want other men to do what I will do not and go and force this person to comply with the threat of violence at the point of a gun. And until the majority in this country say, that's not acceptable. That's not acceptable. We cannot use force and coercion to make people do things they don't want to do when they're not harming anyone or to prevent people from doing things that harm no one but themselves or to take actions that prevent decisions made between consenting adults to provide protections to some in the absence of others until the majority of your country says that's what I want there won't be Independence Day too. There won't be a second Independence Day until then. So we have to work for it individually and for ourselves. And that's what I've been teaching for eight years now. And I hope that's what you've been learning. You can't wait for the system to change. And you damn sure can't change the system. But if enough of us change in our mindset, in our dialogues, and we simply stop going along or fighting from the position of the opposite side of the dichotomy. When I have somebody come to me and they give me their liberal Democrat bullshit and I shoot it down and they try to steer it to a, a conversation about, well, Republicans this and Republicans that, my response is, what makes you think I like anything those people are doing over there? What makes you think I want anything to do with that? And they usually don't know where to go Because it's like pushing against a sponge. You can't fight because there's no resistance. It's quite like Russian Sistema, honestly. Don't give your opponent anything to go off of. Don't let them get into a timing. It's Sistema I'm talking about, not these debates. It opens their mind when they realize they can't get you to go to the other. And I do the same thing with Republicans. I never thought you were a Democrat or a Soviet. I'm like, what the hell makes you think I'm on their side? But why do you feel a need to infringe on the rights and liberties of someone else? And the more of us that do that, see, here's the thing. You don't try to win those arguments. You have very short conversations, and then you talk about baseball or the weather or how to make a dish of food or something else. You plant a seed What if, you plant, what if we planted our gardens the way we try to have political discussions? What if you went outside, stuck a piece of corn in the ground, dirt over it, watered it with your can, and then like five minutes later we're like, where the hell's my corn? And you dug it up and you yelled at it. You stupid piece of corn, grow! Put it back in the ground, pack it down, grow! And like two to three days later you just went out and dug the whole garden up again because it didn't work. That's how we have political discussions in the United States. We want the person to immediately see our side. Where what we need to be doing is saying, it's not about me seeing your side. 
It's about you seeing your own side. See, if you believe that Democrats are just wrong, or Republicans are just wrong, what you're saying is, our country is almost perfectly divided, 50-50, right? Between a group of people that are good, decent people and a bunch of idiot, moron, dumbasses that are evil, stupid bastards. And the people that are most passionate about their side, that's how they actually look at the other side. And they're the most vocal, and they're the ones that are most easily manipulated by the system, and therefore most easily controlled, and therefore that's what you see, and therefore you see the radically stupid of the other side. And you give your radically stupid on your side a pass and go, that's not how we are. That's not how they are either. See, we all really want the same things. All the people that are that are like Bernie Sanders followers that want free shit, they want free shit because they think that's the only way they can get what they really want. You know what they really want? They want an opportunity. They want an opportunity to keep more of what they have and to build up and have more for themselves. They want an opportunity. They don't believe there's an opportunity anymore. So will it take free shit as their opportunity? And there's just countless examples. I can't go with There's a long show today. But in every instance, when you find something wrong with the other side, ask yourself what they really want. What people really want is liberty. They're just so blind, they don't know what it is anymore. So they ask the monster to bash in the other side so that they can have what they want. And then we all tell ourselves, but we need a monster. Well, we have one. And what I'd like to ask you is, how would you ever have a monster that wouldn't grow? How would you ever have one in such change that it could be effective, chained up so well that it can't get away, but yet it can still do what you're asking it to do? You can't. Even if we did a reset button a real reset button. And we took our federal government down to 10% of its size. Not only one day would it be just as bad as it is today, it would get there faster and it would be worse when it got there. Until such time as we're willing to do the things that we want for ourselves, as long as we're asking the monster to act on our behalf, we'll have a monster. We'll have a monster. I, for one, I will not ask the monster to do my bidding. I will just know that he is there. I will accept that I am not capable of killing him myself yet, but I will damn sure injure him in every single way that I can, whenever I can, and I'll teach people the real truth. The way you kill a monster, listen very carefully. This is how you kill monsters. You stop giving them power and you stop fearing them. When you can't be afraid, when you can't be scared by the monster, as all little boys and girls eventually learn, when the monster under your bed no longer scares you, it vanishes. It goes away like a fart in the wind. The most powerful weapon Americans have is proactive apathy. Get with it. With that, I want to remind you, if you do like this show, you can help support me by joining the Member Support Brigade. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more about that. That's all I'll say about that today. The other way that you can help support this show, 
other way you can support this show is when you shop on Amazon, go to tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com. Just go there. You'll see the Amazon item of the day, an item that I personally use and recommend. And if you're not interested in that, no big deal. Search for whatever you're looking for on Amazon. Do your shopping like you would anyway. And guess what? Guess what? You will help support this show by doing absolutely nothing. You will do absolutely nothing different. You will type one less letter and you'll help support my show. And I really wish I would have thought of doing this a long time ago because uh, it is probably the easiest way that folks can help support the work that I do because most of you are going to buy some stuff on Amazon this month. So why not buy it through TSPAS instead of Amazon? You're still going to be on the same site. It won't cost you any more money. And today's item of the day is actually a, a Dutch-made cheese slicer. If you want to know more, just go to tspaz.com. You'll see it, or there's a write-up on the website. But it's something that I bought because a very, very old one finally uh, gave up the ghost uh, from my wife's side of the family. Her parents are Dutch, first-generation immigrants. And uh, yeah, if you want to know more, read the write-up on the blog. Uh, the last thing that I want to talk to you today about, though, before we uh, close up with our song, is the TSP Business Directory. You can go to the TSP Business Directory by going to tspbiz.com and find other members of this audience to do business with. Today's sponsoring member of the Business Directory is the Wealth Studying Podcast. Provides timely information on investing in market trends. John Pugliano is the an expert council member and a great friend of mine personally. Check out his podcast to learn his 10 wealth building principles. And folks, I believe if you want to build wealth in your life, John is a great source of information to learn more about that. Now, I promised you something at the beginning of today's show. What I said was the ending song will really tie into this monster thing and this independence thing, but you wouldn't think it would unless I connected the dots for you. So today's song is by Chris Ledoux, a real cowboy, uh, national saddle bronc uh, rodeo champion, and uh, major, big-time uh, uh, artist. It had a lot of number one records, uh, really great stuff. But his best stuff is actually stuff that you, know, you don't ever hear on the radio. And this is one of those. This song's called The Last Driving. The Last Driving. And it's about just that. And I know driving since Chris wrote this song have actually made a resurgence in their back and it gives me hope. I'll tell you why in a second. But this is about the concept of this little town out in the West and there was this drive-in that was there forever. And as the other drive-ins in nearby towns disappeared, as technology overtook them and replaced them with Mega Mart, you know, Cinemaxes and stuff like that, this one was still there. It was still there, and people still went. And then one day, it just wasn't what people wanted anymore. People turned their backs on the drive-in, and the machines came and tore it to the ground. And it was the last one, and there were no more. And that piece of history was gone. <sighs> We've lost so much in our nation and in our culture and in our values. And things like drive-ins going away are not so much a symptom of that, but they let us see the reality. We start to realize that it's not the drive-in. It was all of the things that went with the drive-in. For the few years we lived in Pennsylvania, there was a drive-in very close to our house. One of those ones that almost was torn down like the one in this song. And some guy, some guy that believed, I can make this work, got it for a song. 
You got to deal on the taxes. You made a deal with the city. He said, this is just going to be torn to the ground. It's going to be nothing. They're not going to develop this. If, if, if it doesn't work out, if I can't make this work, I'm going to sell it to the farmer next to me. He's going to put corn on it. It's going to be ag exempt at that point. You know, let's, let's, let's do something. Let's save this together. And they did. And it was packed every Friday and Saturday night. And they were good movies. They were the, they were like the first one. They were movies that you could have seen three months earlier. It was like right before they go to DVD and all that. Or now, you know, Netflix. And, uh, but they were good movies. They were first run movies, you know, just a little bit later. But it wasn't about the movies. People would park their vehicles, they'd bring their own food, and yet the snack bar was actually affordable because, well, when people can bring food in their car, you can't rip them off. But it was the kids. Groups of kids running everywhere. We'd back our pickup truck into our spot. And when it came over the AM radio, there was a channel you tuned in, and we'd turn it on, open the sliding window, and put chairs up in the back of the truck and sit in the back of the truck and watch the movies and watch the kids play. And today we have situations where parents let their kids play, and if they're not in their direct vision, CPS is called. That's what we've lost. It's not the drive-in. It's the things we saw at the drive-in that weren't on the screen. You want them back? Tell the monster you're not afraid of him. Tell the monster you're not going to yield to him. Roll up your sleeves. You know what to do. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. A caravan of yellow wine came crawling across the plains Rolling along in single file like a slow-moving train It rumbled down out of the mist into the early morning light Said they'd stay till the job was finished If it took them till midnight Well, there were cats and scrapers, all caterpillars Backed up by a mile-high crane And they looked like monsters from the old B-movies The drive-ins used to play And we sang goodbye Saturday under the stars Wake up little Susie in my daddy's car So many memories got lost and found When a piece of history hit the ground The day they tore the last driving down Memories thick as the smoke clouds they made Man and machine became one Board snapped like toothpicks on their blades But to us it sounded like guns Cowboys, soldiers, gangsters and thieves James Bond and his golden girls Well you could sit in your car and never turn the key And go halfway around the world And it stood like a landmark for 40 years Never thought we'd live to see It fall to the ground and then just disappear I 
like so many childhood dreams. And when you sang goodbye Saturday under the stars, wake up little Susie in my daddy's car. So many memories got lost and found when a piece of history hit the ground the day they tore the last driving down. A lot of the drivers had tears in their eyes, and I don't think it was just the dust. See, I still believe there's just a little piece of that old drive-in left in all of us. Well, nobody moved for what seemed like hours. In slow motion, it came tumbling down. We just stood there with a taste of metal in our mouths and a silence all around. The day they tore. The last driving down, and we sang goodbye Saturday under the stars. Wake up, little Susie, in my daddy's car. So many memories got lost and found when a piece of history hit the ground the day they tore the last driving down. 